Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. Painting was a central preoccupation of French writers. They all either wrote about painting or created painters as characters. In this episode, I speak with author Anke Mulstein about her recent book titled The Pen and the Brush, How Passion for Art Shaped 19th Century French Novels. In her recent book, The Pen and the Brush, Anke Mulstein writes, Opening a Balzac novel is like walking into a museum, but a museum where the artists, and sometimes even their models, often step out of their frames to come into the story. Such a symbiotic relationship between writers and painters in 19th and early 20th century France is the subject of Molstein's elegant new book. Prior to the 19th century, access to works of art was largely restricted to the wealthy, who had entree to private collections, and to the devout while attending religious services at churches, where works were typically valued for their illustrative and spiritual power as enhancements to worship. It was only after the French Revolution that the royal collections were opened to the public and the Louvre was transformed into a museum. Visitors were stimulated and inspired by painters in their work, and French writers like Balzac, Zola, Huismans, and Proust developed close relationships with contemporary artists, made artists the subjects of their novels, and often emulated their descriptive and dramatic stylistic effects. Mulstein is a prolific writer and has been twice honored by the French Academy for her biographies, one on her ancestor, James de Rothschild, and another on the 18th-century explorer, Cavalier de la Salle. I spoke with her on the telephone from her home in New York. Tell us what attracted you to the idea of your book. How did you get to this subject, and why did it come to your attention? I started thinking about this book after I gave a talk at the Frick. The Frick asked me to talk about literary society at the time of Renoir. And I thought immediately of Proust, because, you know, Proust once said that once uh, Renoir had been recognized as the great painter he was, all the pretty girls in Paris started looking like Renoir. <laughs> and uh, because actually what happened is that uh, the painter had altered the reality. And that interested me. And though much as I adore Proust, I realized that I had to enlarge the subject somewhat. And I started reading... Uh, um, if you want, up the century. And I realized, much to my astonishment, that really painting was a central preoccupation of French writers. They all either wrote about painting or created uh, painters as characters, but really all of them, Balzac, Stendhal, Flaubert, uh, Huismans, the Goncourt brothers, Zola, uh, Anatole France, uh, Maupassant, uh, uh, up to Proust. And I started really wondering why, because the same was not true uh, of Russian literature. You know, the great Russians, there are no painters. Uh, English literature, you really have to wait till Virginia Woolf. You know, Dickens, Trollope, Middlemarch, there's a very secondary character, but he could just as well be a musician. Americans, you have to wait till uh, till Henry James. Yes, there's Nathaniel Hawthorne, but, I mean, it's not a central preoccupation. And this really puzzled me 
until I realized that the reason had to lay in the fact that the Louvre had opened as a public museum very early, uh, at the very end of the 18th century, but much before any other museum in Europe had opened. So this was really the start. Yeah, you, you mentioned, uh, as you begin with the French Revolution and the nationalizing of the royal collections at the time, that in 1793, the Louvre opened its doors to the public as the Central Museum of Arts. It That's had a, right. It had a name and a mission, which was to bring the collections that were once private, now public. What was that like? What, how can we identify the effect that that had on writers and the reading public in Paris during the 1790s? Was there commentary about what people saw for the first time and the excitement they felt in seeing it? There was a huge excitement. I mean, you have to realize that the collection was huge. I mean, the royal collections were were really quite, quite amazing. And they were exposed in a sort of um, educational way. You know, they were not sort of haphazardly uh, uh, shown. They were really organized by school and chronologically, and there was a little booklet that was distributed. And what was perhaps more important, there was a lot of publicity about it, not only during the revolution, but perhaps even more so in the period following that culminated with Napoleon's conquest in Europe that translated by an amazing pillaging of art all over Europe. You know, whenever the French occupied a country, they brought back art. And these works of art did not make a discreet entrance. There was a sort of parade when art was brought in. Uh, for instance, when the great um, wedding at Cana, the Veronese, was brought from Venice to Paris, there was a parade. Uh, the parade was preceded by wild animals, which of course always attract <laughs> a lot of people. Uh, then, you know, the horses, the, the copper horses of St. Mark's Basilica. Thirty chariots full of sculptures and paintings, and the smaller paintings were carried by the soldiers on their shoulders. So you can imagine the excitement of the populace. It was new that suddenly art was completely in the air. Now writers, I mean young people who before the opening of the museum would have had absolutely no opportunity to see art what, except in churches where you didn't see art very well because they were so dark? Well, suddenly they, they could sort of walk around the Louvre, the Grande Galerie, at their own speed, at their own fantasy, and absorb it all. And, you know, think of a young man like Balzac who arrived in Paris when he was 15. He was not a very good, very good at school and he played hockey all the time. And where did he go? He went to the Louvre. And you can see when you read his novels how he had absorbed the collection. But I think perhaps even more important, it gave, and Balzac was not the only one, of course. But so what was important is that the, the young writers, the young artists sort of earned a common vocabulary with painters. They suddenly were speaking about the same thing. That was very important. Was it important, do you think, in the context of the Napoleonic victories in the 
collecting of works of art and bringing them to Paris in the first instance, that it was confirming of a kind of new national post-revolutionary identity, the sense that of a, of a kind of greatness of the state and the greatness of the nation and the confirmation that art played a critical role in that great triumph. Yes, and, and then perhaps more important, that art was really for the people. You know, whenever they brought back, the justification was the art was not going to be reserved for the pleasure of the tyrants. It was going to be given to the people. And, you know, it sounds a bit ridiculous because it's sort of pompous way of speaking. But on the other hand, when you think that uh, in England or in Germany, I mean, you could visit great mansions where there was wonderful art. You could go to private galleries if you were introduced, if you were recommended. So the sort of poor guy who arrives from the provinces had absolutely no chance of seeing anything. I'm always amused by the fact that in Vienna, where in principle the collections of the imperial palace were open to everybody on the condition that the visitor would have clean shoes. <laughs> clean shoes? Why clean shoes? Well, clean shoes because it proved that you had enough money either to hire a cab or to have your private carriage. So it was, in a way, a, a rather subtle way of um, choosing your public. And, you know, the same was true in England. I mean, if you wanted to go and visit the collections of the Duke of Devonshire, you couldn't just show up. You you just had to have somebody vouch for you. Right, right. So I think that was important in France. It was for everybody. And I think I'm right about this, too, that it was the dawn of the Romantic era, and there was a great emulation of individual genius, and, and that one saw this individual genius at work, not only in writing, but in painting and, and in music, for example. But that the attraction between writing and painting went both ways, that is, that French novelists wrote about painters and, and painting, and French painters painted pictures inspired by literary texts like classical literature, the Bible, Goethe's Faust, Sir Walter Scott, Byron, and more. Now, there's, there's a kind of a shared community of genius, a respect for genius, one to the next. Well, yes, of course, because there is also an explosion of great painters in the 19th century. But that also is, in a way, thanks to the revolution. You know, before the revolution, only artists that were members of the academy could exhibit officially their work. So if you saw works, they were the works of academic um, artists. After the revolution, that changed. And uh, the exhibitions were uh, held in the Louvre before the revolution uh, twice a year. And after the revolution, they continued. But the difference was that the artist did not have to be a member of the academy. It was open to everybody. There was a jury, otherwise they would have been absolutely swamped. But the number of artists who uh, could actually uh, show, exhibit, uh, went from a few hundreds to a few thousands. So that makes a huge difference. And those salons attracted an amazing number of, of people. They were extraordinarily popular. In all the novels of the period, you have descriptions of those crowds, those throngs. You had to fight your way to go and see the, the paintings. And that was very important also. You know, think of one thing. The National Gallery in London opened in 1824 with 38 paintings. <laughs> so that that's not a lot. <laughs> that's not a lot. No, but, you know, think about it. It yeah. makes a huge, huge difference. So, of course, people were not as excited about art in England as they were in Paris. Yeah. 
Okay, we should begin now with the authors that you highlight, and beginning with Balzac. And, and, and I was struck by the quotation you had in the book from his work, The Daughter of Eve, where he defines his writing in very explicit painterly terms. He writes, The differences in tone, nuance, color, and outline which differentiate the six parts of this work might at some later stage be noticed or appreciated. There's a clear painterliness about his writing of that sentence, a kind of concentration on the subtleties of the craft of writing as if those subtleties were shared between the writer and the painter. He's looking at making a sentence and setting a stage for action in a kind of self-conscious way, the way a painter would. Yes. Well, a painting was a sort of inspiration for Balzac, really. What also uh, struck me with Balzac is that he was the first novelist to really describe physically people. You know, before that, you know, there was a beautiful woman in a novel who just said, uh, oh, well, she was a heavenly creature in La Princesse de Clèves. She was the most beautiful woman of the court. You don't have an impression of what she really looked like. But Balzac describes, you know, the complexion, the hair, the hands. And very often he says... It would take a painter to do justice, and he would give the name of the painter. So there's a sort of osmosis between the painter and the writer here. He says, well, she looked like a Raphael. He looked like a Rembrandt. So he sort of forces the reader to have a very strong image of what he is describing. It made me think of, of Flaubert, about whom you don't write as much as you write about Balzac and the others, but Flaubert, who one considered a realist author, but who was very conscious and professed a consciousness about the rendering of sentence and structure and words in the right order and the precision of the tools of his craft, as it were, on the very same terms as you describe Balzac, the very same terms as a painter might, a painting the sense of a common recognition that the making of something, of a work of art, involved the discrete elements of style in the making of it. Actually, Flaubert also said, I want to write as if I were short-sighted. There's the, the sort of image of vision that is so important also. So it's completely mingled. It's a curious thing, but uh, it's very strong in Balzac. And Balzac could be uh, inspired... By a painting, for instance, uh, he saw a painting representing Napoleon on the battlefield and Napoleon was standing next to a heap of corpses and it gave Balzac the idea of writing a novella called Le Colonel Chabert where the poor colonel is buried under a, a heap of dead bodies and it takes him a while to sort of claw his way back. So it's literally the painting that gave him the idea of the novella. But tell us about his work, The Unknown Masterpiece. Ah, that's quite quite an extraordinary novella. It's curious because, you know, generally the setting in Balzac is contemporary. It's always 19th century society. And there it's much more abstract because he set his story in the 17th century. And he has a fictional painter called Frenhofer, who uh, is friends with two uh, real painters, Nicolas Poussin, who is perhaps one of the greatest French painters, and a painter called Franz Bourbus, who is a Maria de Medici's a court painter. And it's the story of a genius. Frenhofer is a genius. And his struggle 
is extraordinarily painful. He meets with his two friends and he tells them that he has been working for 10 years on a painting that he has shown nobody and he is completely devastated because he lost his model. And Poussin offers him his own model on the condition that he will be allowed to see the painting. And the old painter accepts and is uh, absolutely uh, astonished by the beauty of the model. He finishes the painting very quickly and uh, asks Bourbus and Poussin to come and look at it. And they enter the, the studio and they are completely appalled. They see a wall of paint, a chaos of, of colors, uh, a sort of unbelievable mix, mingle, and just one foot, one perfect, delightful foot that emerges from this disorder. And they are completely speechless, and Frenhofer understands immediately that they don't get it, they don't catch it. And he tries to explain to them that lines don't exist in nature, that he has made the, the lines disappear. So, of course, there's a sort of blurring of the reality. And he says, of course, reality and art are not interchangeable. They are two completely different things. And the woman that I represented is not a creature. She is a creation. But still, he is faced with the bewilderment of these two artists, and he is so disenchanted that he uh, sets fire to his studio, he commits suicide, and his work is destroyed. What is, of course, extraordinary in the novel is that the description of Frenhofer's painting sort of seems like the description, you know, of a very contemporary painting. He he could be describing a Jackson Pollock. I mean, it, th there's a sort of unbelievable leap of imagination taken by Balzac. Uh, I mean, closer to his time, he sort of seemed to imagine the Impressionist sort of 30 years hence, because the, it, that's exactly what the Impressionists did. They blurred the line. You, you see an Impressionist landscape. It's not it's sort of detailed the way a landscape, uh, you know, a Middle Ages or a 17th century landscape is. It's different, completely different. And so Balzac seems to have imagined what could happen in the evolution of modern art. And what I find very touching is that the novella was absolutely adored by later painters. For instance, Cézanne. Cézanne did not read the novel, but one of his painter friends read it to him, and uh, Emile Bernard. And he said, while I was reading, suddenly Cézanne got up and pointing to himself showed that Frenhofer was he. And <laughs> later on in, a, in an interview, uh, Cézanne said, you know, it's horrible when I paint, I look and I look so intently, I have the feeling that my eyes are bleeding. Surely I must be a bit crazy like Frenhofer. It was very, very strong. And of course, Picasso illustrated the novella. Yeah, yeah. And 
by a curious twist, uh, Picasso moved in a studio, uh, Quai des Grands Augustins, where actually Balzac had set the, the story of Fredhofer. And Picasso was thrilled. He was extraordinarily happy to move in a way in Fredhofer's studio. So that's the genius of Balzac. I mean, he was a realist with an unbelievable imagination. Yeah, I, when I read it the, for the first time, it reminded me of Jericho or even of Delacroix, the sense of, sort of fragmentation of human form within the context of a flurry of color and lights and so forth. And also, I'm thinking of Balzac and his friendship with the caricature publisher Charles Philippon, who was the principal publisher of the satirist Daumier. How does a perceptive observer of humanity's foibles like Daumier fit into your picture of French artists? I know that there were mutual friendships among them. Uh, Daumier had a certain influence on the style of Balzac, certainly of Maupassant, where suddenly Maupassant describes people with very short sentences or even fragments of sentences, exactly the way a caricature is done, you know, just stressing one character, the appearance of a foot, the appearance of an arm, and the sort of brevity suddenly of the style, which is very new uh, in that time, comes, I think, from the caricature. Yeah. Uh, next, you introduce us to Emile Zola, the childhood friend and sometimes rival of Cezanne. How does Zola fit into your story? Ah, Zola. Well, well, you see, Balzac didn't know any any painter, so I think that was an advantage. He could write about painters, and he certainly didn't. He he had many more uh, fictional painters uh, than than writers. He was not interested in writers in fiction, while uh, Zola had just one fictional painter. But Zola knew painters. Uh, his best friend from school was Cézanne, and they remained friends all their life. They were raised in Aix-en-Provence in the south of France, and they both came up to Paris, as, as we say in France. Ils ont monté à Paris uh, <laughs> together. And uh, Zola had a hard time. He didn't have a penny. He didn't have a good job. And he didn't know anybody. The only people he knew were Cézanne's friends. And Cézanne was friendly with all the painters of the period. And so Zola was really part of that milieu. And he started his career as an art critic, uh, defending very, very vigorously uh, his friends, the naturalists, as they were called then, and then the impressionists. But when he wrote about a painter, it was so precise, and the painters seemed to recognize themselves. Uh, his painter is a man called Claude Lantier. Physically, he has a lot of Cézanne. He's dressed like Cézanne. He has the bad character of Cézanne. And um, the art is not Cézanne's at all, but it is described very precisely. And when the fictional painter shows a, a painting at the Salon, it is Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe. So Zola did not invent much. He described paintings that he knew and he attributed them to his fictional painter. Well, all this with the result that the painters were furious and Monet said, well, you know, it's a shame that you did it. Everybody's going to recognize us. And as in the story, the painter actually also commits suicide. Monet said, we all are going to appear as losers. <laughs> so uh, poor Zola, who had 
defended them with such verve, with such talent, was suddenly a sort of uh, brushed away by these people that he admired so much. It's the danger of realism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, how did Zola come to meet poets like Baudelaire or painters like Manet? I'm, I'm thinking of Manet's great painting of uh, this courtesan named Nana, who, after all, is the title of a book by Zola. Uh, what were the circumstances of their meeting and working in the middle of the 19th century? That also is quite interesting because Zola and his painter's friends shared the same subjects very precisely. And Nana is a case in point. I mean, the, the famous Manet Nana, you know, the, the wonderful little saucy little courtesan with the old gentleman in the back looking at her posterior with the eye of a connoisseur. Well, Nana, the, the name, comes from the vicious little girl that Zola invented in uh, The Drinking Den. She is the daughter of Gervaise, and in this first novel, she's quite young, but you know immediately that she is not going to start working in a laundry like her mother. She's going to live of her looks. So uh, Manet paints Nana, and then Zola ends the story of Nana in another novel called Nana. So there's a sort of back and forth there. They really shared the subject. But, um, you know, he also shared subjects with Degas, for instance, Zola. Uh, in The Drinking Den, most of the part takes place in a laundry, and there's a, not only the washerwoman, but the ironers. And, you know, uh, Degas did those marvelous series of washerwomen and ironers. And Zola actually wrote to Degas, saying, you know, I literally wrote my pages on the ironers looking at your painting. And this is fascinating because normally you would think that Degas' painting would have illustrated the novel. That's the way generally things happen. Well, here it's the opposite. It is the writer that takes the inspiration from the painting and very precisely and that's new. Yeah, there's so many relations and the interrelations among them all. And it made me think of Baudelaire, for example, and Baudelaire's relationship to Manet and, and, and how it was that you had to make decisions about what to include and what not to include to fit your book. Uh, how did you come to make these decisions? And do you have any regrets about leaving any particular artist out or any particular writer out? Well, in a way, I regret a little bit that I didn't do Baudelaire and Mallarmé. They were more different to do because their writings on art are real journalism pieces, really. They're not novels. They're not fictional. Because that also is new and very particular to France, that all these writers, I mean, really all of them, wrote about art in such an extraordinary way. For instance, Rismans, Zola, uh, Mallarmé, Baudelaire, they all wrote art criticism. And that I regret a little bit. Yeah, it, it made me think of that very touching and moving portrait of Baudelaire's funeral by Manet, the sense that there were these signature figures in their world that were protean in character and they celebrated these kinds of protean characters. I, and I, but I want to get to near the end of the book because you, you have written so beautifully on Proust before and you bring the, all of that command to our understanding of Proust at the end of your book. How does he fit into your story? Well, Proust first fit in my story because I think he is the last writer who really, how should I say, 
you know, there's a sort of movement of writers towards painters. And I think that in a way he ends this movement. I think you could argue that there's still uh, writers and and artists who are very connected later on in the 20th century, but I think not as strongly, not as precisely as the one I talk about. And Proust really ends this movement. What I found uh, extraordinary in Proust is that, and in a way it's a little bit like Balzac, is that he uses the painting to describe his character. I mean, all readers of Proust know that uh, one of the main characters, Swan, who's a real art lover and an art collector, falls in love with a courtesan, really, not at first sight, but once he realizes that she looks like a Botticelli. So the crystallization of the love comes from the work of art. So there is Odette transformed in this Botticelli sort of ethereal creature. And then, uh, of course, uh, Odette, the courtesan, turns out not to be so charming. She turns cold. She makes a swan suffer. She proves very grasping, very interested. And suddenly, he changes. He sees her as the Salome of Gustave Moreau, the Salome, you know, with the head of St. John Baptist, and the Salome bejeweled, cold, terribly uh, venal and uh, wicked. And so it's really through the image of Botticelli and Moreau that the reader gets this sort of brutal feeling of the change in the character. So he uses painting amazingly well in the psychological uh, evocation of his characters. You, you talk a lot about the character Elstir, uh, as he might be uh, related to Whistler and Whistler. Uh, but And you say that we never see the anxieties that he has as a painter. We never actually even see him work as a yes. painter. In that way, Proust is very different from Balzac, from Zola, uh, from Maupassant. He never shows the painter uh, sort of struggling with his art, uh, wondering who is going to buy his painting, uh, choosing his brush. I mean, all the other ones are very, very precise in their description of the paint. Proust is much more abstract. Actually, you never see Elstir painting. Just briefly, once he sort of, uh, uh, he, he receives the visits of the narrator and he says, oh, I just want to finish this. You you can poke around the studio while I finish. But you never see that. What is interesting in, in the character is that he proves uh, the mentor of the narrator. You know, you could consider that uh, uh, In Search of Lost Time is the story of a vocation, how the narrator becomes a writer and who introduces him to the world of art but the painter. And it's striking because Proust created three great artists, a writer, Bergotte, a musician, Vinteuil, and a painter, Elstir. And it is the painter who shows the narrator that the real artist is the man who knows how to look, and to look with what he calls a virgin eye. You must sort of make abstraction of what you think you are looking at and just look and that is what is going to make you a writer and what makes Elstir a great painter. Now, 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 near the end of your book, you quote Virginia Woolf 
saying that were all modern paintings to be destroyed, a critic of the 25th century would be able to deduce from the works of Proust alone the existence of Matisse, Cezanne, Derain, and Picasso. He would be able to say that with these books before him, that painters with the highest originality and power must be covering canvas after canvas, squeezing tubes after tubes in the room next door. And you say the same could be said of the French novelist before him, that painting and literature had been inextricably linked for over a century. Do you think that's still true about painters and novelists in the 20th century in Paris? I, I don't see it as clearly as in the 19th century. I mean, painting became abstract. It was much more difficult to... Uh, I think that the two arts have taken divergent uh, paths in a way. Though, I have to say that going back to Proust and uh, Picasso, it's not obvious, of course, and it's not obvious for the very good reason is that Proust didn't understand Picasso's painting. I mean, he went once to the studio and said, uh, he came back and he told his housekeeper, I saw this Spanish painter, he's doing something called Cubism, I have to admit, I didn't understand it at all. And yet, in his style, in his way of writing, if you consider that uh, Picasso, you know, when you have these images of women that you see both from profile and from the front, uh, Proust does the same thing in his writing. He describes something from different point of views, which is exactly what uh, Picasso does. But he was not influenced because... He didn't see the Picasso, so you might think that there's something in the air that explained both of them. I don't see that in the 20th century. I know that, uh, for instance, Hemingway said that he he learned so much uh, looking at the Cezanne, but it's not as clear, it's not as openly obvious as uh, with my writers. Well, you make such a convincing case about the importance of this mutual relationship in the 19th century. Uh, it's great to know that this book, so beautifully written, could have come from a single lecture at the Frick. Uh, what is your next lecture going to be? And what book might drive from your next lecture? <laughs> Well, for the moment, I'm preparing something completely different. I'm writing the introduction uh, for the new edition of Chateaubriand's Memoirs for the New York Review of Books. Uh -huh. And so, uh, well, that's, that's perhaps also, I mean, that's a great, great writer. Uh, painting was not so important to Chateaubriand, but he was a man of the 18th century, I think, in that regard. But that's what I'm doing right now. Well, we, we look forward to that, and we thank you so much for the book you've written, uh, and thank you for sharing that book with us, uh, The Pen and the Brush, How Passion for Art Shaped 19th Century French Novels. So thank you, Anka, very much. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great, great pleasure to talk with you. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>